Yeah. I'll be the first to say it. Soundplay? <laughs> Who cares? I get it. I get why you might think, another student-run podcast, really? I need- I ha- I don't have- I don't have space for that in my life. I have a busy schedule, I go to class. I have five classes, I have a job, I have a cat to take care of. Alright, my mom loves me a lot, so I spend a lot of time with her. I don't have time for another podcast. That's where you're wrong. That's... That's precisely where you're wrong. That's exactly where you're wrong. The Soundplay Podcast today will be presenting you with stories and features that are just fantastic. We're bringing in a professor from the school, from Salem State. Professor Larry Lewis is going to talk with us about how Tai Chi works. So we're going to have some metaphysical conversation. I grew up in China. Amazingly poor village. As a young boy, he never knew what a full stomach was like. You're listening to Soundlight, a radio show that features audio work from students at SSU. Thanks for listening to Soundlight. Thanks. 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 This is Professor Lewis, by the way. I have Professor Lewis on to talk a bit about his Tai Chi one-credit course, right? Yes. Tai Chi, when I did it, I didn't really know a lot about it. Is Tai Chi a martial art on its own, or is it, like, supplementary? Uh, Tai Chi is a martial art, but it's other things as well. And most of the people who practice it do not do it for the martial applications. Okay, so there's like a, there's a range of uses for it, I guess. I guess what, what I generally say is there's at least three elements to it. Uh, One, it's a system of exercise that's unique. Second, it's a system of meditation. And third, it's a martial art. And perhaps fourth, and people don't like to talk about this, but I don't really care. It's, it's really a practice of Taoism. Taoism. So this, is, um, this comes from perhaps the oldest, I'm not sure what you want to call it. Uh, some people call it a philosophy. Other people call it a religion. And then some people say, like one of my first teachers, Dr. Yang, has said that um, before before Buddhism came to China, Taoism was a philosophy. And after Buddhism came, 
it's religion. But, but here's the thing, at least from my point of view, everyone has a different point of view. So my own teacher, Master Joe, is a Taoist priest. So he grew up in China, an amazingly poor village. As a young boy, he never knew what a full stomach was like until he was about 13 years old. So he left his family at 13 and he went to Wudan Mountain. And he went there for the purpose of learning martial arts. And the purpose of that was if he could learn that, maybe he could teach others, maybe he could make a living, maybe he wouldn't starve to death. And then after he got to Wudang, he fell in love with Taoism and he became a Taoist priest. So he says it's a philosophy, but here's the thing about Master Joe, he can marry people, bury people, bless babies. Uh, if you have demons in your house, he could deal with those. And if you do all those things, then at least to me, I think it's a religion. So would it, so it would be different than like what we think of as religion, like Catholic? Absolutely. So yeah. I once had Master Joe come to Salem State and he gave a seminar for the philosophy department. And there is a philosophy professor who is trained in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. And he, and he gave a talk primarily on the history of Taoism. And he kept baiting Master Joe looking for some equivalent of Christianity, yeah. but it's just not there. There's, there is no Christian equivalence in Taoism. Gotcha. So it, so the physical practice of Tai Chi is almost like based on the philosophy of Taoism then? Well, it's complicated and no one really knows for sure. So I, what you had first was Taoism. Now, my, and there's different forms of Taoism. For example, my teacher is a shamanistic Taoist. Oh, wow. And in Wudang, there are two types. That's where Taoism began. And it began by the Yellow Emperor. And he had a couple of issues that he wanted addressed. One is uh, he wanted to live a longer and healthier life for him and all the other nobility of China. And he also wanted a nice place to go in the summer because in the summer it really got hot in Beijing and he wanted a cool place. So I would say as whatever you want to call it, it's totally based on wellness. Mm. So their goal is to make people healthier and live a longer life. Gotcha. And um, you know, normally people who teach Tai Chi don't talk about this. For the same reason, people who teach yoga don't talk about religions of India. And part of the problem is, uh, for example, when uh, Dr. Yang first came to the United States, a lot of clerics would tell their parishioners, don't see him, don't practice Tai Chi. It's wow. a blasphemy. So it's like when you take yoga, they're not likely to talk about religion. Yeah, so they just keep it out of the controversy. They try to just suppress it. Yeah. And the, the meditation we do in my class, um, what we call the primary set, 
That's a form of Taoist prayer. Although it's not prayer in any Western sense, you're not asking anyone for anything. And part of it has to do with Western interpretations of religion and prayer and meditation. So it is fundamentally different. Mm. So what would you say like the, the difference for, between Western and Taoist prayer is? I'm try, like, I, I can't try to determine what the difference between meditation and prayer is, but I can't. Like... Okay, so Taoism, I would say meditation is prayer. Okay. So, so what is the difference? I would say one way Dr. Yang looks at it is if you practice a Western religion and you have a problem in life, where do you look? You look to God, you look to the sky, you look for someone in a gray beard to help you. Taoism isn't like that. If you have an issue, you go within. So it's fundamentally different. And I think at some level, only the practice gives you insight into what it is. For example, when I was a college student, uh, even though my main focus is in biology, uh, as a college student, I had a minor in philosophy. And I learned about Eastern religion and Taoism, and I was told you should empty your mind. And as a student, it made no sense to me whatsoever. What does it mean to have an empty mind? I don't know, I wouldn't. <laughs> However, when I do the primary set and I focus on my breathing and I focus on the chi and I calm the mind and the body and move the chi and raise the spirit, well, that's emptying the mind. So I think only in practicing it do you get a feeling for what it means. Mm. Yeah, because that, that seems a lot different with not to like stay on the religion, but Western religion is kind of more belief oriented rather than like practice. You know what I mean? Um, that's interesting. I think you're right. Uh, in, in Western religion, especially, and I grew up in the world of Judaism. Hmm. So at least that's where I'm coming from, at least historically. Um, and to me, that's very different from Christianity. Yes. Uh, Christianity, I would say, is, as I understand it, it's about what you believe. Mm -hmm. So Judaism, by the way, is not. It doesn't matter what you believe. Really? Uh, so, um, and I would, I would, I like your distinction. It's about a practice. Yeah. So if you would ask me, what is Tai Chi? Is it exercise? Is it meditation? Is it a martial art? In the end, at least for me, it's all of these things and none of those things. In the end, it becomes a way of life. Okay. And at least for me, it also depends how you grew up. So I grew up in Brooklyn. I grew up in a slum. Uh, my dad was a gangster, worked for the mob. So I grew up in a world that I would describe was brutal where many times in my childhood, there was a lack of clarity. If my lifespan could be measured in more than minutes, I would be in situations like, what the heck do you do now? How is right, this going right. on? 
So part of my childhood, which is to some extent connected to Tai Chi, is when I was 13, I began to box. So I boxed for 15 years in Brooklyn. My dad sometimes was a second in professional fights. I met lots of people uh, in my father's business. I met Angelo Dundee when Ali was training in Florida. So I grew up in the world of fighting. Yeah. And it's not just boxing, it's the street. It's how do you get through a day? Right. How are you going to get to school and live? It's just survival at that point. Yes. And I mean, the good news for me was as a little boy, some of my earliest memories were, how do I get out of here? There's got to be a better place. Right. This is crazy. And somehow, I can't describe how, I somehow went on to get a PhD. Neither of my parents went to high school. Wow. Their education went through what you would call middle school. I mean, my mother as a young girl would walk to school and collapse in the street from malnutrition. So it's, it's hard to uh, communicate what the Great Depression was like for my parents' education. And my dad, his mom, uh, was ill from a very, uh, before she was 30, she was bedridden from hypertension in a world where there were no meds. His dad walked out. He had a, another sibling, a brother who was disabled. And so as a young kid, he began to work for the mob. He began to help him run numbers because you got to eat. Right. And welfare gave you nothing in those days. He told me he was 12 years old when he ate his first egg. He didn't know what an egg was because he couldn't afford it. That's hard to even, that's hard to even wrap my mind around. Very difficult. Oh, it's crazy. My mother in ways was worse. So when she was a little girl, if she came home from school, she and her siblings would go down to the train tracks. And what they would do is look for coal that had fallen off of trains. And if they could gather enough, they could go home to their apartment where they had a coal stove, only source of heat and cooking. And they might have a little heat and maybe they could have a warm dinner. And the good day, a good dinner was an onion sandwich. And her father, my grandfather, uh, he was blacklisted. So he was a veteran of World War I. And when he came home, he became a communist. And so he was one of a generation where if you had left-leaning feelings, you couldn't work. So between World War I and World War II, he couldn't work. The only thing he could do was buy a bottle, a box of apples and try to sell them on the street. So basically, because because he said he was a communist, they just yes. decided, no, you can't work. That's the way it was, yes. Wow. So at any event, I, I came up from, I would say, a violent childhood. And I was surrounded with violence. And so the Chinese martial arts at some point in my life had an appeal. 
Um, it's, I mean, the thing about boxing, it's not the kind of thing you can do your whole life, at least not a lot. Yeah. I mean, back of me, I do have a wave master bag. I have a light bag. So I can do some training things, but it's not really an activity you could do at my age. It's just bad for your everything. Yeah. Whereas the great thing about Chinese martial arts, I mean, it's a good and a bad, is you could do it your whole life. And generally the way it's practiced, assuming you're dealing with people who have a little bit of sense, which is not always true, then you're not gonna get hurt. So these are not practices usually. I mean, it's, it depends. For example, when my teacher was learning sword in China, uh, here was the class. The teacher gave a sword to two young men and the instructions were fight. As a result, he has scars on his face and body. So there are different ways of teaching. Yeah. And from martial perspective, sometimes in ways it's worse because a lot of people who learn so-called Asian martial arts in the end never really fight. Hmm. They just go through these forms. And at least to me, the reality is, unless you actually have experience fighting, it's, it's meaningless. So it's all an application. Well, it's, it's in the mind. For example, uh, I boxed until I was 28, which is when I left New York City. And in the last couple of years, we were approached by a fellow who was a, a black belt in Korean karate. And he wanted to do what was becoming a new fad at the time, which is contact karate. So to him, that meant he wanted to learn how to fight. So he came to us. And he said he wanted to learn how to box, how to spar, to actually get experience fighting in an environment where you're not really going to get hurt because you got head guards and mouth protectors and so on. Um, and in my experience, these guys, they were amazing physical shape. Like if you, this guy who ran that school could do 2000 pushups. I mean, he was like extraordinary. He's not a normal human yet. In the ring, he was not really good at fighting. Mm. And the reason was he could not really take pressure. He would break down and he couldn't judge distance. So I think um, if your goal is to be a martial artist, you got to do different things, which include fighting. And of course, today in, in the world for people like yourself, Often that means MMA. Yeah. So a lot of the people I know in the world of Tai Chi sometimes come in and out of MMA. Um, and I've, we've had a very good friend who was, uh, until very recently, was a professional MMA fighter. And fortunately, he's not doing it anymore. I must say, I have mixed feelings about MMA. Plus, I, I just, I love boxing. And the problem with MMA is it's taken away attention from boxing. And also there's a belief, which to me is not true, that somehow MMA is closer to real fighting than boxing is because it uses kicks in addition to punches and other things. 
And the fact is, to me, MMA is a world of rules like any of these worlds are. Right. And uh, it's not clear to me that's really true. And often, certainly in the beginning of uh, what was called contact karate, uh, they had rules that said you had to kick a certain number of times in each round or you would disqualify. They made people kick. And the reason was that kicks were not that effective. Hmm. And in my opinion, often, when you have forms which are super complicated, then you begin to compromise your ability to do one thing or a few things. So it's, it's complex. Now, hmm. from the martial world of Tai Chi, it's an incredibly complex world. And I would say most people I know probably have felt, and I felt this way, I had to do it for 10 years before I felt it's something I could use in the street in a practical way. 10 years. Yes. No one's going to do that for that reason. If someone came to me and said, listen, I want to be able to fight better, I would not advise them to learn Tai Chi. Yes. The word itself means grand ultimate fist. Ultimate fist. So, wow. or I once asked Alex Kissel, who used to own a martial arts studio in Andover, uh, what is the most powerful martial art? And Alex has won championships in Tai Chi and Kung Fu and other things. Mm -hmm. In the end, Alex felt it was Tai Chi. But the issue is that's only true for very, very few people. So is Tai Chi one of those... One of those things where not in the short term effective, but if you do it for long enough, then it becomes like greater than the other ones. Yes, in my mm. opinion. Or I would at least put it this way, it's different. So as a fighting form, um, it has to do with very close contact situations and very specific situations. Hmm. So probably for me, if I was in a street situation and I was attacked, if I could move, if I had distance, probably I would box. If someone grabs you, then Tai Chi has specific applications for very specific situations. What happens if someone grabs you from behind like this and what happens if someone tries to strangle you? Uh, and it always, the reason it's so hard, it's defensive. And it makes the following assumption that the person attacking you is bigger, stronger, younger, faster. You're at this huge disadvantage. It's what Dr. Yang once said. You know, if you could train someone who is young and strong and fast to be people who are old and fat and, and disabled, you have nothing. But if you have a martial art where a 70 year old could be jumped by three 16 year old kids and take them out, now you have a form that's interesting. Yeah. Although I must say, and I've seen video on YouTube of an old guy who was jumped by a bunch of young kids and in his youth, he had been a boxer and he took them all out. So uh, 
in the end, I would say in the world of martial arts, you use what you feel comfortable with, what you know. And so, but I would say Tai Chi is very complex. Yeah. So no one's going to learn it for that reason. Uh, and it takes too long. For example, you know, in the military, they don't use Tai Chi. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got six weeks to train someone to fight. You're not going to do that. Or uh, Dr. Yang, for example, was approached by the North Andover Police Department. So one of the techniques in Tai Chi is called Chinna, which means to lock joints. And it gives you the ability to make someone, put someone in great pain. At the same time, you don't leave marks. Mm. And he absolutely refused because he did not have faith in police officers. This is years ago. Right. So, I mean, once there was a police officer in one of our uh, classes, but that person was vetted very carefully. Mm -hmm. So his goal was not to teach people, uh, police certainly, uh, how to hurt people without leaving marks, which is really what they love to do sometimes. Yeah. So, uh, so in any event, as a martial art, I would say it's different than uh, others. Uh, it's based on close contact. As a principle, once you make contact, you never break contact. So uh, Kung Fu is different from that. So where you could, it's like boxing, you can be close, you can go move in and out. Uh, karate is like that, but Tai Chi is not. And that's even true when it comes to weapons. So even if fighting with swords or sabers, the moment you make contact, you never break contact with your opponent. And partly it's because it's a defensive martial art and it's based upon the intent of the person trying to get you. So it's purely defensive. Hmm. So it, it's like in reaction to what the other person is doing? Always. Hmm. So there's no stance in Tai Chi. There's no ready position. Yeah. The only, if you want to call it a ready position is Wu Chi, which is nothing, which is just standing up. So and the, the way to understand it is like this. So my teacher, Master Joe, became a Taoist priest. So if you ask, what does a Taoist priest do? So what they do in practice is the moment he's ordained, he leaves the mountain. He leaves Wudong with the clothes on his back, with nothing. And what he will do is wander to other masters and mountains to learn from others and to teach where he can. If he's ever going to eat, someone's going to feed him. If he's ever going to take a bus or a train, someone's going to pay for it. And it's very similar to the story of the great Buddha in India. So in Buddhism, uh, if, if you know a little bit about that, and I see you have images in your room, so you probably do. So the great Buddha was born, of course, a prince with lots of money, whatever, wealth. And then he leaves his home and he wanders into India. And of course, what does he see? He sees suffering. And from that experience, Buddhism 
develops. Uh, so in many respects, Taoism is very similar to Buddhism. In fact, where Master Joe went to school at Wudong, there are people who are Buddhist Taoists. And they're a little different than he is in two respects. They never eat meat and they never marry. So the shamanistic Taoist is different. They're more ancient. It goes back to when there was just hunter-gatherers and shamans. He's a very old. He's like a 40,000-year-old man. (laughs) He never spent one hour in a school that we would understand. So now he walks off the mountain. Now, what's the difference between the Taoist and the Buddhist? India is a pretty gentle place. You're not likely to be mugged in India. Yeah. But in China, if you can't fight, you have a short half-life. Yeah. So it's a pretty, you know, it's a brutal place. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, maybe you've seen the videos. In China, someone gets run over by a car and they just ignore them. Just keep going about their day. Life is cheap. Yeah. People are tough. So I would say the Taoist priests are among the greatest martial artists on earth because they have to be. Mm-hmm. When Master Zhou was at uh, Wudang, he would train sometimes nine hours a day. His autobiography is crazy with what the Chinese call bitterness. So in, in China, their view of life is so different than the West. I'll tell you a, a story that I once read in, about the death of a great teacher in Shaolin Temple. So a Western reporter goes to the funeral and as he's observing Shaolin, it's, it's a place where thousands of young students are. You can think of it as in the Dominican Republic, all the little kids want to learn baseball. Just like Pedro Martinez, they want to do this because it's a way out of poverty. Yeah. So all these little kids think, I'm going to be the next Jet Li. I'm going to be Jackie Chan. And, and you know, it's like, it's like an American saying, I want to be a great musician. You know how this is going to work. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why they're there. And then the reporter is watching the teacher deal with the children, young children. And if they do anything at all wrong, the teacher takes a stick and beats them. And finally, the American, in our culture, you're not supposed to beat children. Mm -hmm. Goes over to this teacher and he says, what the heck are you doing beating these children? And the teacher gets very serious and turns to him and says to teach them the most important lesson of life. And that lesson is bitterness. Wow. So in the biography of my teacher, he said when he first went to Wudang, he ate a lot of bitter. So I'm gonna cut the conversation off right here, but join us for part two of this conversation. In the next episode, we're gonna discuss more modern day things and get into politics and all that fun, fun contemporary magic. And then we'll tie it back around to Tai Chi.